0: Welcome to Inspire Churches podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. This morning, I am excited to uh, tackle another difficult, controversial saying. But I think uh, by the time we finish today, you'll find, like with the majority of these, it's not as difficult, as controversial as some people may think it to be. Planning a wedding can be hectic. Now, many of you in here know that. Some of you in here have yet to do that. I don't want to scare you, but maybe I can help you out just a little bit this morning. In fact, uh, I think it was the providence of God that I woke up this morning and Bridezilla uh, was showing on TV and I had a little extra time waiting for my wife to, uh, finish her beautiful makeup. So I decided to watch a little bit of bridezilla. I think one of my favorite parts today was that there was a young lady, uh, who was getting her hair done by her grandma and her grandma essentially told her, I told you I'm a beautician, not a magician. (laughs) I thought that it was hilarious. Um, and, anyways, it was definitely the providence of God, that bridezilla. You know, I think sometimes the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, sometimes we are a little more like bridezillas. Amen? Uh, but nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, planning a wedding can be a little hectic. First, there's organizing the entire event, The decor, the music, the pictures, the awkward traditions. Has anybody ever been lassoed before? Latinos, where are you at? awkward traditions, there's reception, there's venue, there's favors, there's cake, there's food, and then there's the thousands of dollars it costs, and if you thought organizing this entire event was stressful, amen, wait till it comes to determining the guest list, and then sending out the invitations, you see, by the time you've invited family you've never seen, and parents' random friends, you barely have enough space and money for the people that actually care. Okay, maybe not. Some of you said that was tragic. (laughs) Now, you may not be familiar. uh, Maybe the Lord has spared you from this next stress, but if your family is crazy, you just might have to deal with the added anxiety of the uninvited plus one anybody ever had that before you know the cousin nobody likes bringing his girlfriend that nobody likes how about the overly inebriated always inappropriate uncle that's not really anybody's uncle like we call him uncle but that's not really uncle the guy that gets the mic and makes the toast and he's not on the agenda How about the thugs in the parking lot who decided to turn your reception into a tailgate and brought their own alcohol, and while you're trying to enjoy your first dance, you're stressed out about who brought who and why are they in the parking lot. I know some of you in here got that. Now, don't get me wrong. Celebrations are beautiful, but I think we can all agree they can be a little stressful to execute at times. So, from today's parable, um, it's about a wedding celebration, but I want to highlight from today's parable the wedding celebration itself, the wedding invitation, and then the wedding crasher. And then we'll finish with Christ's controversial statement. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you that your grace covers our bridezilliness as a church. You love your bride, and you desire to wash your bride clean so that we can be presented to you with spotless garments. So, Lord, we just ask that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Matthew 22, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14, but I'm just going to open up with 1 through 10, so feel free to follow along. I'm going to take a swig of water. It's nice and cold, perfect. Here we go. Matthew 22, verse 1, reads like this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Some wedding feast. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good so the wedding hall was filled with guests now let's stop here momentarily in order to best grasp the parable we need a little bit of context we're a context church I don't typically like to preach a sermon without giving you the context context You see, after three years of proclaiming the gospel, Israel had now rejected Christ as their Messiah. Especially their religious leaders, who were now growing increasingly hostile towards Jesus by the day. Let me put this in perspective. Jesus tells this parable on the Wednesday before he's crucified... One day after he entered the temple, flipped over the tables, whipped out the money changers. Fed up with his actions, the religious leaders, the elders and the chief priests began to question Jesus and ask him, How dare you? Who do you think you are? By what authority do you have to do these things that you've been doing and say the things that you've been saying? Now, in response to this question, Jesus tells three parables of judgment that find their ultimate climax in this controversial statement. Many are called, but few are chosen. Let's talk about the wedding feast. Jesus begins... This final parable by comparing the kingdom of God to a wedding feast. And rightfully so. You see, when it came to weddings, the ancient Near East knew how to party, y'all. Feasting lasted seven days and ended with the marriage being consummated. Now, I don't know about you, but feasting for seven days gets me excited. Now, add to that the fact that this was a royal wedding. This was the king's wedding. Well, this was the king's son's wedding. And you can understand that the turn up just gets that much more epic. Now, I want you to think about this now. Jesus, speaking this parable to this particular culture, was comparing God's kingdom to the greatest celebration imaginable thrown by the wealthiest person imaginable in honoring the most honorable person imaginable. Now, here's a beautiful thought for you and I to ponder. The significance of this wedding feast is that it represents that culminating moment in history when God gathers all the redeemed to celebrate the joining together of himself And his people enjoy for all eternity. I mean, what a day that will be. What a day that will be when there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. And we see the face of our Savior and all of the redeemed, different colors different nations, different tribes, different tongues come together and celebrate entering into eternity in eternal bliss, pleasure, and joy forevermore. What a party that will be. Now, in saying that, who in their right mind would reject such a gracious invitation, right? What an honor it was to be invited to the king's reception. You see, nobody in that culture at that time would have thought twice about attending that kind of event. You had nothing better to do, nothing better to eat. If the king invites you to his son's wedding reception, you are not saying no. You're not going to the mall. You don't have anything else to do that's better than that. You see, today we have fear of commitment, fear of missing out. Today we have all kinds of things. But during that time, nobody in their right mind would ever reject Being invited to a royal wedding. Even today, wouldn't you agree an invitation is special? Amen? An invitation invitation to a special event is a privilege. Uh, This is why when we don't get invited, we get a little hurt. Right? Think about it. An invitation is a validation of how much you mean to someone, right, or some people. Anybody ever been there? Come on. Uh, It's difficult when you're not invited. Anybody ever been home and started sifting through Facebook or Instagram? The devil's working. Come on. And you're looking, and, oh, look, there's all my friends celebrating one of my friends' birthdays. Wait a minute. And I'm at home, and nobody told me. That's hurtful, stressful, it breaks churches apart. Some people don't even talk to the other person. But that just goes to show you that even in our busy culture, an invitation means a lot. So this parable gets ridiculous. This parable uh, is hard to understand when the hearers learn that not just a few, but all many people reject the king's invitation. This is simply an unbelievable story. There Jesus goes again telling a story that is ridiculous and unbelievable. Nobody would reject an invitation. Nobody reject a royal invitation from a king. But I want you to listen to what Matthew 21, verse 45 reveals. It says this, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They were absolutely right. And here's what I want to say. Matthew 21 is referring to another parable what Jesus was speaking. But here's what I want you to know, that as Jesus began to speak these parables in his last week, the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests began to realize, okay, we're the butt of this joke. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Notice the king's words to his servants. He says, call those who are invited. Call those who are invited. What does he mean by that? You see, God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And through Abraham, the world would be blessed. Israel had become what we call the already invited ones. They were God's chosen people. They received their save the dates. They had already RSVP'd. Yet when the king's son finally came, they rejected the invitation. Are you with me? Now, what was the invitation? What was this invitation? What are we really talking about here? You see, the invitation is the gospel, The invitation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Christ has come to redeem sinners. That we have been invited to spend eternity with God in true pleasure and true joy. Now listen... All that is required of you, all that is required of me in return is to simply receive and respond to the invitation in Christ. That's it. That's the beauty of an invitation, and that's the beauty of the gospel. Now think about an invitation. The host takes on all of the burden. Amen? The host, any hosts in here, any, any wedding planners, party planners in here, you take on all the burden. The goal is to make sure that nobody else is stressed. In fact, I remember my wife and I, when we got married, we had a great wedding planner, Sister Catherine Bogis. And I always have to, I'll always be thankful for her because, uh, and Jeffrey's in this building too. Uh, we went to our reception and we were in marital bliss. We had no idea that behind the scenes, the place that was supposed to have our cake done didn't do our cake. And so there poor Jeffrey was running around like a chicken with his head chopped off, taking all the burden away. And Jamil and I, we had no clue. And it wasn't until we walked to our wedding and we realized we had a lot of cupcakes, but we had no cake. And I kind of quickly, it's kind of like, and then it just kind of left me because we were just, you know, again, we were getting married, y'all. We were getting closer to the wedding night. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm ready to cupcake, y'all. Like, you know what I mean? Let's get past the cupcakes to the cupcakes. (laughs) Stick to the notes. But, but. But the wedding planner, the host takes on all the responsibility. It's the host's job to find a venue, prepare the meals, provide for the guests. Now, listen, this is the beauty of the gospel. All the guests have to do is simply receive and respond to the invitation. It has already been laid out for you. All you have to do is show up and partake of it. Are you with me? Aren't you glad that the gospel is good news and not good instruction? I said, aren't you glad that the gospel is good news, not good instruction? What do I mean by that? If it were good instruction, that would mean that there's something you and I must do to earn my salvation. But since it's good news, all that is required of me is to hear it and believe it. And the tragedy of this whole parable lies in this. Despite this good news, despite this royal invitation... The ones who had already been invited and RSVP'd, now rejected. Jesus describes in the parable two rejectors: Those who were indifferent and those who were hostile. Do you see that? Those who were indifferent and those who were hostile. We're told that when the king's servants came with the king's invitation, there were those who paid no attention I feel like that happens every sunday there were those who paid no attention and sifted through twitter and facebook no i'm just kidding there were those who paid no attention but instead focused on their farms and focused on their businesses and focused on the things that they wanted to accomplish The tragedy here, and and, and, well, their tragedy is our warning this morning, amen? Their tragedy is our warning this morning, and I'll say it again. Their tragedy is your warning this morning. If you and I are not careful, we can become preoccupied with the things of this world. Preoccupied with success. Preoccupied with possessions. Preoccupied with material gain. Preoccupied with happiness. Preoccupied with our husband, our wife, our boyfriend, or our girlfriend. We can become preoccupied with the things of this world. And here's the danger. Preoccupation with worldly pursuits leads to an indifference towards Jesus Christ. Preoccupation to worldly pursuits leads towards an an indifference towards Jesus Christ. Can I just say this? Ask yourself today, what am I supremely pursuing above all else? What am I supremely desiring above all else? And this is key. Take note of this. Desensitization is a good way to measure your indifference towards Jesus. If you want to know if you're feeling indifferent towards Christ and his gospel, take a look at what you've been desensitized to. Are you desensitized towards sin in your life? Do you find yourself compromising like never before? Do you find yourself justifying old sinful habits and patterns and behaviors? You just might be indifferent to Jesus. Are you desensitized towards the ministry of the word of God in your life? Are you bored with the scriptures? Has the preaching of the word stopped bringing the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life? Then you just might be indifferent to Jesus. Are you desensitized towards Christian community and accountability? Do you find yourself avoiding Bible study, avoiding regular church attendance, and making excuses why you're just too tired or too busy? Then you just might be indifferent to Jesus Christ. If you said yes to any of these questions, that's the bad news. But there's good news. Thank God for the good news. There's good news at any moment, including right now. You can repent and believe the gospel all over again. Wow. At any moment, including right now. You could repent and believe the gospel. You feel beat up. At any moment, you could repent and believe the gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd be clothed in his righteousness, not your own, and you begin to lead the life that God has called you to lead. There were those that were indifferent, and then there were those that were hostile. I mean, how much do you have to hate the king, not only to reject his gracious invitation, but to literally, literally murder the messengers. Right? Doesn't that seem inconceivable? Doesn't that seem ridiculous? Inconceivable. <laughs> got it, good. Glad some of you got that. That seems ridiculous, it seems impossible, but yet this is the story of salvation history. Israel killed his prophets, John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was just two days away from being crucified. And we know that as the early church in the book of Acts began to grow and multiply, many apostles and ministers of the gospel were killed for the sake of the gospel. I want to make four observations before we move on to the next section. Number one, first, the servants of the king were sent more than once to the already invited ones. Did you catch that? They were sent more than once to the already invited ones. Thank you. I'm sweating up here. I'm glad somebody saw that. I'm sure all of you saw that. Somebody help him. Amen. The servants of the king, or the servants of the king, came more than once to the already invited ones. What does that mean? God demonstrates His grace. What is His grace? His grace is His willingness to keep inviting you after you've kept rejecting Him. His grace. It's to keep inviting you, even though you keep rejecting him. And can I just say, in our flesh and in our sinful nature, uh, uh, somebody rejects our invitation once, all of us are ready for the get back. Don't we keep records of wrongs? Amen? You ever invited someone, they rejected you, and you're like, all right, we'll see. <laughs> two years later? Two years later, y'all. We're not talking about a week later. Two years later, they invite you. And you're like, "Nah, I'm good. I'm busy. You ain't got nothing to do that night. You're bored. In fact, you were praying, God, give me something to do this weekend. Something came along, but because you're full of sin, you said, nah, I'm good. But here's the deal here. There was a continual invitation. But here's what I do want to say. Grace is good, but, and patience is beautiful, but there are limits to the patience. This brings us to our second. God's judgment is his justice, and his justice is good. I want to say this. Without context, verse 7, right? Did you see us get to that part? It was like, and the king sent his troops and literally destroyed the murderers, burned down their city. Well, without the context, um, (laughs) this murderous king (laughs) would feel really unjust, Uh, but we realize that these individuals had not only been continually rejecting the invitation but also had been murdering his servants and so it was just for the king to implement justice thirdly number three i want you to listen to what verse eight says it says this the wedding feast is ready but those who were invited were what they were not what worthy they were not worthy did you catch that now this is important The measurement of their worthiness was not based upon their virtue or their good works, but was solely based upon them accepting the invitation. Can can somebody hear that today? Because that's freedom in this room. The measurement of your worthiness is not your goodness. It's not your good works. You you could be a sinner. In fact, Jesus will, the parable will later say, go invite anyone on the streets. What did he say? Good or what? Good or bad, which means your worthiness to the gospel is not based on your goodness. Your worthiness is not based on how good you've been, how many points you've earned with God. Nobody can earn points with God. When we put our goodness next to the infinitely good one, we will never measure up. Even our good works are terrible. They're clothed in selfishness. We want to be seen. Even our best works still have sin in them. But the beautiful thing about the invitation of the gospel is that the worthiness is not based upon how good or bad you are, but based upon your willingness to receive the invitation and respond to the gospel. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is like an invitation. It's the host that has made all the arrangements. And the only requirement of the guest is to receive it and respond to it. Fourth observation here, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ completed the rejection of Israel. You see, now it was time for the invitation to be sent out to other nations. As Jesus is telling this parable, remember, he's telling this parable on the Wednesday of the week that he'll be crucified, which means Thursday will pass and Good Friday will come. He's telling this parable two days before he's crucified. And what he's saying is once I am crucified, the rejection of Israel will be complete. And now the invitation will be taken away from the already invited ones and will be sent out to the rest of the nations. Notice the great commission language in verse 9 and 10 of the parable. Jesus says in this parable, the king tells his servants, go therefore. Does that remind you of something? go therefore to the main roads and invite to the feast as many as you can find and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found what both good and bad both good and both good and invite them all invite the homeless invite the ones that nobody would want to invite invite the ones invite anybody who will respond This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus does not care where you find them or the condition that you find them in. You could be currently messed up. You could be at a point in your life right now where everything is terrible. Nothing looks good. And Jesus Christ says, I want you to come. Man. No wonder why the religious leaders hated the gospel, but the sinners loved Jesus. No wonder why they wanted to hang with Jesus in the streets, but the church wanted nothing to do with him. You see, because this message threatened their religious control. But to the sinner, down on their luck, in the mud, in the muck, in the streets... The message of the gospel breathed hope into their chaotic life. No wonder why the religious system crucified him. Oh, I'm a little excited, y'all. This is the gospel. As many as you can find, go and invite them to come. Good or come on. Jesus finishes this parable with a wedding crasher and a controversial statement. Let's finish it together in verse 11 through 14. And it reads like this. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here Without a wedding garment. And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. Can you imagine what that day will be when the wealthiest person ever creates the greatest celebration ever for the most honorable person ever and for the people that will not be allowed inside. Can you imagine the tears and the regret and the gnashing of teeth that will take place knowing that you can't get in? This final point of the parable is especially tragic to me because we're no longer talking about indifferent, and hostile rejectors of Christ. But now we're talking about imposters, possibly attending church regularly. You see, as a pastor, nothing saddens me more than the thought of those who might be in this room today carrying a false sense of security regarding your salvation. Please hear me out. Just because at some point in your life, you raised your hand and repeated a prayer or you responded to an altar call does not mean that you love Jesus and that your eternity is secure. If that prayer is not producing inside of you a desire to walk closer to Jesus and move further from sin, if that altar call Is not producing inside of you a hunger and thirst for righteousness. If the beauty of the gospel is not compelling you to live in obedience to Jesus, you are the imposter in the story. Hear my heart, please. I'd rather the gospel offend you today than for you to be discovered as an imposter on that day and say, I wish somebody would have told me. And that's the problem with our convoluted, demonically controlled culture. You see, the culture is telling us That if you don't have anything nice to say to me, then don't say anything at all. If you don't have anything encouraging, positive, and uplifting to say to me, then don't tell me anything at all. But can I submit to you today that sometimes the gospel may not come off encouraging and uplifting, but first the gospel might have to destroy and break down. You see, but in our culture today, it says, let me go to hell and don't tell me anything. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, love is greater and stronger than that, and I refuse. I refuse to not send that invitation out over and over and over again, no matter how indifferent and how hostile you become. I'm just speaking to somebody in here today. Your family members are hostile towards the gospel. Your friends, the people close to your life, they're indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They act like they don't care. They get angry at you. You might have been cussed out because you tried to love Jesus. You have tried to tell them about the gospel. But Let me encourage you this morning. No matter how indifferent or hostile they become you continue to preach the gospel of jesus christ because i'd rather them be offended now than hanging on the outside later and them saying why didn't you compel me why didn't you tell me? Now, that's the difference in being a jerk. There's some Christian jerks in here, and your families don't like church because you're a jerk. I'm not talking about that. You need to check your heart. And I just needed to make sure I said that because some of you are like, see, I'm going to keep telling them. They're going to hell. No, 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 no. Our sinful nature wants to justify everything. Okay. Just need, I needed to point that out. Amen, sis. This leads us to Jesus' final comment. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, some of you probably were waiting for this deep theological debate about the idea of God's foreknowledge and predestination. But I'm sorry to tell you that we are not in the Pauline epistles. If we were, I would go over that. But this is we are actually in Jesus' parable. And so there's no need to make this into anything more than what Jesus actually meant it. Amen? And we will get into that at some point. But this statement by itself is not only controversial, but it also summarizes the entire parable, the entire section of parables. Here's the summarization. When it comes to God's kingdom, all are invited. Many will reject. And only a few will actually enter in. When it comes to God's kingdom, all are invited. Many will reject, and only a few will enter in. I want you to remember this. In Scripture, whenever you see the call of God... And I think we get this wrong in some circles of Christianity, Uh, and and, and again, I don't think it's a terrible thing, so don't feel like you have to stop saying it this way, but I just want to make some corrections. Some of us have grown up in a tradition where we say calling, and we automatically think about our destiny with God. Like, you have a calling over your life. Amen? You ever heard that? Uh, You have a great call, right? And we immediately begin to think about, I'm going to win a lot of people for Jesus. I'm going to stand on stages. I'm going to do all these great things. I'm going to travel the nations, right? And so we've used the word, and I don't have a problem, so you don't have to stop doing that, but I want you to what Scripture says about calling. Calling is actually this. Calling is the invitation of God made to all mankind to place their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in this case, Jesus in his death, in his life, death, and resurrection calls all of humanity to him. Jesus died for all. Whosoever will, he died for all all. But just because the call was made to all does not mean that all will willingly respond. Therefore the chosen Jesus is referring to in this text are those who hear the invitation of the gospel and respond to it by submitting their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can I say that again? The call refers to Jesus calling to himself all mankind. The chosen refers to those who will hear the call and respond to it by submitting their lives to the lordship of Jesus. Now, this is key, and this is controversial. Here it is. Although the call is universal, the response is limited. Although the call is universal, the response is limited. And I'm going to conclude with this. When I finished preparing for this message, uh, something continued to stick out to me in this story concerning the guests at the wedding feast. There was just something that was sticking out to me. And because it was just kind of routinely staying in my mind, I knew that the Lord most likely wanted me to share this at some point. And here's what it was, and we're almost finished. The imposter was only discovered by the king. The, the, you notice it was it wasn't until the king was there. The imposter wasn't discovered by those fellow attendees at the invitation, at the banquet. Everyone was probably enjoying, and, and no everyone kept going, and no one, everyone was merry. But it was only the king that discovered the imposter. And that thought stood with me. It almost seems like nobody else noticed their clothes. So I began to think about. The king's ability to see what nobody else can see. The king, he said, "Hey, you're not wearing the right garments." The king's ability to see what nobody else could see. I want you to. I want you to catch this. We, you and I, can only see from the outside in. So we have a tendency to put on what I call church clothes. I know what church clothes are? Your Sunday's best. We're going to church. We're going to church, right? Let's, let's put on the tie. Let's put on the suit. Let's, let's dress in a way that we wouldn't normally dress throughout the week because we're going to church. Now I get it. This church is a little more modern and hip. Some of you look like you're just wearing the thing you wore Saturday morning. But back in the day, when you were going to church, you put your church clothes on, suit and tie, and and don't think I messed because I got ripped jeans, so I get it, I get it. It starts with me. But we put on our Sunday's best, and you ready for this? Leading lives that only look okay on Sunday mornings. Leading lives that only look okay on Sunday mornings because you've got your church clothes on. But the king, he sees from the inside out. So the same church clothes that are helpful in hiding from others are exposed in the presence of God. Are you with me? They're exposed in the presence of God. And you can hide. You can, you can hide yourself. You can say all the right things and do all the right things. But in the presence of God, the king sees from the inside. Out. You see, when it comes to the wedding feast, there's a dress code. The king asks you to wear kingdom clothes and not church clothes. Kingdom clothes, not church clothes. Well, what's the difference? Church clothes are the robes of your own righteousness. It's you trying to control God with your good works. It's you trying to control God. It's you trying to manipulate God. It's you trying to cover yourself up so that everyone else will see. It's you, a church attender. It's you, member of the church. It's you, contributor to the church. You, met, you might even give the most. You might even attend the most. And you're wearing church clothes. But the thing about church clothes, they're heavy and they're burdensome. But you're wearing them, you're wearing them, you're wearing them. You see, church clothes are robes of your own righteousness because you think that you're earning good standing with God. And then there are kingdom clothes. And kingdom clothes are the robes of Christ's righteousness. It's you throwing yourself on the mercy of God and saying, there's nothing I can wear or do to cover up my sin. But my confidence is not in my own wardrobe, but in the perfect, stainless wardrobe of Jesus Christ. My confidence is not in my own wardrobe, but in the perfect, stainless wardrobe of Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish with Isaiah 61.10. And it reads like this. Please let this scripture speak to you. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in to sprout so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You might think, well, there was something you have to do, Phil. It wasn't just receive and respond to the invitation, but you had to wear the right clothes. And I would say, yes, but the right clothes was not trying to get into the party in your own wardrobe, but trying to get into it with Christ's wardrobe, which means there's nothing you have to do to cover or dress things up. All you have to do is repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you would do that, he would cover you with his wardrobe and not yours. Some of you know you've been walking around in shoes and in clothes that need to be washed. You've been walking around in shoes and clothes that are dirty and they weigh you down. You're ashamed to walk in your clothes. But Jesus offers his spotless, without blemish, without stain robes. And he gives it to you freely. Don't enter the wedding feast without wearing his clothes. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can you just write where you're at? Well, just think about how good it feels to be dressed in his clothes. (laughs) You know, I want to say there's some Christians in here. Sometimes we change clothes. We go back into our church clothes, right? We have a tendency to take off our robes of righteousness and start dressing up with the robes of our own righteousness. And before you know, it, it's been a month, two months, a year, two years, and you're just knee deep in your own clothes. But I want you to know, repent and believe the gospel. It's not just entry level stuff, but it's the stuff that God will continue to beckon you to do. There are some of you in here today, you love Jesus, but he's not the Lord of your life. And I want you to know that it's one thing to want to get close to him, but getting close to him means that you're walking away from sin. And so I just declare all over this room that we would have a church full of people who would honestly, openly repent and believe the gospel. They wouldn't try to fix it. Don't leave today trying to fix it by doing more good things. That would mean you would be wearing your own righteousness. Don't try to fix and say, well, tomorrow I'm gonna change this and I'm gonna stop doing this. The minute you start thinking your salvation is contingent upon you stopping something is the minute you've missed it. So the answer is, well, what do I do? I mean, you told me I have to walk away from sin. And I'm gonna tell you this: repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. I love the gospel. It's not about trying. It's about believing. So, Heavenly Father, I just pray throughout this whole room, Lord, whether someone doesn't know Jesus or someone knows Jesus but finds themselves in their own righteousness, Lord, we put on your robe. Come on, right now, we put on your robe. I repent. I repent. What does it mean to repent? It just simply means I am a sinner. I know I am. You don't have to convince me. You don't have to convince anyone around me. I know I am a sinner. And believe the gospel, but I believe Jesus, you did not sin. I believe Jesus, you walked a blameless life, a sinless life. You were perfect in all of your ways. I believe that because of that blameness and perfection, you preached the glorious gospel, but you were rejected and you were killed. And on that cross, not only did you suffer a torturous and painful death on my behalf, but the Father turned his back. in that grave and you were raised on the third day and because you have life I can now have life and I can put on your robes and not wear my own and so today all I'm doing in this room is saying God I put on your robes Jesus I put on your robes put on your robes thank you thank you I worship you I worship you I thank for you God I believe the gospel I repent and believe the gospel thank you for your invitation because it's gone out to the good and the bad. Thank you that the requirement of the gospel is only that I would respond and receive it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. I just pray, the last thing I want to pray, I just pray for anyone in this room that has come this morning beaten down, worn out, given up. Lord, I pray that this message would build them up in the gospel. Jesus Christ, you are Savior, healer, redeemer, restorer. You change lives. You make things new. And so I just thank you for this room. I thank you for everyone who has heard the gospel. And I thank you for your grace that will continue to invite. And I pray that we would be not the hostile, the indifferent, or the imposter, but that we would be the humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you guys so much. Have a wonderful Sunday. Go out, enjoy your week in the gospel. It's beautiful and it's glorious, amen. God bless you.